Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. Beginning in chapter 2, Mark arranged five short narratives in a row which reveal different aspects of the ministry of Jesus. So far, he has forgiven someone of their sins, he has shared a meal with tax collectors and sinners, and he doesn't seem to take the religious practice of fasting seriously enough. With each of these, conflict builds. It's becoming apparent that just as Jesus said, he is like new wine, which cannot be put into the old wineskins of Jewish tradition, for it will burst. At first, the religious leaders question Jesus in their head. Then they speak their concerns out loud to both Jesus and his disciples. And then the opposition comes to a climax at the end of our passage today. People are now actively plotting his death. The final two controversies involve the Sabbath day. It's hard to fully appreciate these conflicts because Sabbath practice today is pitiful. Blue laws are rapidly disappearing, and more and more people work every day so that there is, for many people, hardly any distinguishing between days, certainly not between days of work and rest. Just a hundred or so years ago, Sabbath practice was readily observed, but with dour religiosity, which led to people disdaining the day. Robert Graves' poem, The Boy Out of Church, depicted this attitude with the words, I do not love the Sabbath, the soap suds in the starch, the troops of solemn people who to salvation march. The poem describes joyless duty. But hardly anyone bothers with religious duty today. People will come to church if they want to, or they will do something else. There's no longer societal pressure to go. And many of the people who do go to church often spend the rest of the day as they would on Saturday. And so people outside the church hardly notice a distinguishing of the days, which influenced the band Crash Test Dummies to write this trivial description of the Sabbath in one of their songs. After seven days, he was quite tired. So God said, let there be a day just for picnics with wine and bread. He gathered up some people he had made, created blankets, and laid back in the shade. But of course, that you know, does not reflect the true meaning of the Sabbath at all. God cannot tire. He does not sleep or slumber. And he created the Sabbath for us, not for himself. That last statement is not only a corrective that we need to hear today, it's, it's what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago because people misunderstood the purpose of the Sabbath back then as well. Now, the, the Sabbath officially began at sunset on Friday and extended until sunset on Saturday. The law that regulated the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment, is the longest of the Ten Commandments. It requires the Jewish people, as well as their slaves, 
and anyone in their household or living among them, as well as their animals, to have rest from labor. Even vegetation was bound by the commandment, as it could not be cut, plucked, or uprooted. The Sabbath day set God's people apart from the other nations. Like circumcision, it defined their cultural identity and special relationship with God. The Lord said of his people through the prophet Ezekiel, I have given them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Observance of the Sabbath was a vivid reminder that the Jewish people belong to God and are made holy by God. As the day is set apart from others, they are set apart from others as well. Because of this, to not observe the Sabbath is to reject the symbol of your belonging to God, which is why in our Old Testament reading, the penalty for rejecting the Sabbath is death. If you were unwilling to live as the people of God, then you were to be removed from the people of God, lest you corrupt it. It's a harsh penalty, but the history of Israel reveals that their unwillingness to keep the laws of God led to tragedy after tragedy. In the days of Jesus, religious observance was taken more seriously. Since the matter of Sabbath observance is one of life and death, it became important to know exactly what constitutes work. The rabbis endeavored to offer a rule or at least a precedent, for every conceivable Sabbath question. For example, it was decided that if a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued, but if dead, their corpses must be left until sunset. The Mishnah, which contains the interpretations of the Pharisees, lists 39 classes of work that profane the Sabbath. Some are not surprising, plowing, hunting, butchering, but it also prohibited tying or loosening knots, sewing more than one stitch, or writing more than one letter. Even the number of steps one could take on the Sabbath day was limited. Generally, you would have to prepare for the Sabbath by doing extra work before, but you would also need to be careful to avoid starting work that would carry over into the Sabbath. At the outset of this passage, Jesus and his disciples appear to be breaking two of the Pharisees' rules. They're traveling and they're gleaning. It might seem odd that they were picking grain from someone else's field, but that was permissible. Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. That, of course, says nothing about the day. Later, rabbinical ruling decided that it wasn't permissible to pick food from your neighbor's standing grain on the Sabbath. In our passage last week, Jesus taught that it would be inappropriate for the disciples to fast since they were with the bridegroom. Here they are again with the bridegroom, and they're being criticized for eating. Mark does not state that Jesus himself was plucking heads of grain, but that his disciples were. The Pharisees immediately criticized the disciples, not Jesus. 
But in what happens next, we see a wonderful glimpse of the gospel. Without hesitation, Jesus came to the defense of his followers. He advocated for them. He is a mediator between the disciples and the Pharisees. But on a grander scale, he is the mediator between us and God. He will defend you from charges brought against you by the accuser, which is what the name Satan means. Satan is the accuser, and Jesus Christ is our advocate. Now, Jesus responded to their objection in the way that would be typical of how rabbis handled theological controversies, by appealing to Scripture. Jesus reminded them of the time when King David, Israel's greatest king and the precursor to the Messiah, was in extreme need for food, both he and his companions. And so David violated the Torah by taking the bread of presence from the tabernacle and eating it. Now, the bread of presence refers to the 12 loaves of bread placed on the altar each Sabbath as food for the priests. David was not condemned or punished for this violation of God's law. In fact, he received permission from the high priest to eat. Now, the case doesn't exactly appear to be apples to apples. David violated the command out of extreme need. In fact, life-threatening need for himself and his companions. That doesn't seem to be the case for Jesus' disciples. The Pharisees would naturally argue that if the disciples did not have any food prepared for Sabbath, then that's their own fault for poor preparation and they should go without. But Jesus doesn't agree with their interpretation of the law. To him, it's okay for hungry people to have something to eat on the Sabbath. His point by bringing up David is not to emphasize the extreme need, but the authority David had. Jesus is comparing himself to David. Now, he sees himself as the Messiah, the son of David. As David had authority that superseded the normal rules for the Sabbath, so does the son of David, Jesus. And Jesus reminded them that the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing and not a curse. Now, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So it was certainly appropriate to enjoy fresh harvest on the day. And then he followed that statement with an incredible claim. He declared himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. This is yet another claim by Jesus to have authority that belongs only to God. In other words, this is a claim of divinity. Sometimes you might hear someone say that Jesus never claimed to be God, but an attentive student of Scripture will see that he reveals himself to be God time and time again. In fact, that's one of the main reasons the religious leaders sought his death. Earlier, he forgave a man's sin, something that only God can do. And then we saw that just as he was not defiled by touching a leper, he was not defiled by the company of tax collectors and sinners he ate with. He is holy and incorruptible like God. And he declared himself to be the bridegroom of the people of God, which parallels the imagery of God as Israel's husband. In this passage, he's making another powerful claim that puts him on equal footing with God. He declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was created long before Moses. The Lord himself, God, embedded the Sabbath 
in creation. Genesis chapter 2 opens with the words, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the Sabbath day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God is the Lord of the Sabbath. He created it by establishing it and blessing it. He is the one who set it aside from the very beginning of the world to be a day apart from the rest of the week. But Jesus, in his defense of the disciples, has now claimed to have authority that supersedes the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. Even more than that, he has claimed to be what God alone is, the Lord of the Sabbath. And he did it with great emphasis. This can be seen in the Greek syntax. Unlike English, Greek words can be put anywhere in a sentence and make sense because of the case endings. And so a word could be placed first to emphasize it. In the Greek, the word Lord is placed first. So in a wooden translation or the Master Yoda translation, you could translate Jesus' statement as, Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man is. Furthermore, that word for Lord, Kyrios, is the same one used throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the divine name of God. And so this is a strong claim to divinity that Jesus is making. Jesus is not abolishing the Sabbath, but fulfilling it in himself. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Surely the Pharisees were offended But Mark doesn't record their reaction. However, the next episode shows that tension is mounting related to the Sabbath. Jesus is back in the synagogue in Capernaum where he had cast out the demon earlier, an act of healing that did not get him in trouble, but rather amazed the people. But you can tell things have changed in the religious leader's perception of Jesus. They're no longer amused by him, but threatened. And so on the Sabbath day, the day of worship, the Pharisees watched Jesus carefully to try and catch him breaking the Jewish law. They wanted to accuse him of wrong to discredit him. It just so happened that there was a man attending worship that day with a deformed hand. The Pharisees didn't feel bad for the man. They weren't sympathetic at all. To them, he was an opportunity to catch Jesus in a trap. They wanted to see if Jesus would heal the man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were no longer impressed by Jesus' ability to heal. They didn't question his ability to heal. They expected it and were waiting for it to happen in front of them so that they could accuse him of a Sabbath violation, which, as I mentioned earlier, is punishable by death. It was permissible to provide certain healing on the Sabbath day. They could provide first aid to prevent a problem that needs immediate attention from getting worse. But for any condition that was not life-threatening, such as a long-term disability, it was not to be treated on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus recognized that he was being watched, and he knew what they were up to. And so he asked them a simple question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. It seems obvious to say that you ought to be able to do good and save life on the Sabbath day, but 
They did not want to give Jesus permission to heal. And so they remained silent. They were willfully rejecting Jesus to the detriment of the man with the withered hand. It's clear that it didn't really matter what Jesus said or did next. They had already made up their mind against him. Jesus looked around at each one of them, and he was angry with their sinful attitude. It's clear that the man with the withered hand wasn't the only person there with a deformity. The religious leaders had a deformed heart. They were indifferent toward divine grace. They had no compassion for the man in need. And so it was done. With anger for those who had a withered heart, and with compassion for the man with a withered hand, and with the firm conviction that it's morally imperative to do good on the Sabbath, Jesus said, stretch out your hand. He did not lift the man's hand, nor did he pull out special oils or medicines. Those actions could be considered work and thus inappropriate for the Sabbath day. Jesus simply spoke which is not prohibited on the Sabbath. The man had to decide what to do. He has been put on the spot in front of everyone in the synagogue. His embarrassing hand condition is in the middle of a religious controversy. His elders and leaders are clearly against Jesus. Will he upset them by obeying Jesus? If he obeys Jesus, then perhaps he'll be healed. But to receive healing his faith would have to be demonstrated by action. He would have to raise his hand in front of everyone to see. Ultimately, the man put his faith in Jesus and lifted up his hand and found it to be healed. It turns out it was much easier for Jesus to heal the man's withered hand than it was for him to heal the Pharisee's withered heart. He didn't have to perform any work to heal. He simply spoke and God granted power to his words, something that seems unlikely if he were truly a Sabbath breaker worthy of death. But for those who had already made up their mind against him, this was too much. The passage ends with the Pharisees conspiring with the Herodians, who are likely sympathizers of King Herod. Religious people and politically minded people are now united over their hatred of Jesus, and so they set in motion a plot against the life of Jesus. It's with great irony that on a day like the Sabbath, which is set apart to do good, the Pharisees work with the Herodians to plot the murder of the Messiah. Each thing that Jesus said or did which displayed his authority, should have led people to recognize him as the Messiah and trust him. But instead, the threats against him increased. He is the presence of God to those who believe and a stumbling block for those with hard hearts. What do you think of him? Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 